Welcome to the C-Word, a conservative podcast. Today we're talking about Halloween. I'm Jenna Mathiason, an objects conservative based in Carmarthenshire. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservative based in Greater Manchester. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. Okay, so we're doing one of these again. <laughs> We loved it so much. I hope you did as well. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it, it was an absolute hoot doing it last time. And uh, we have invited back our special guest host. Would you like to reintroduce yourself to our listeners? Hello, everyone. My name is Ali Singh. I'm an assistant conservation technician at Ingenium, Canada's Science and Technology Museum Corporation, and arguably Canada's most hazardous museum collection. At least I think so. That's scary. But I also literally moonlight as a tour guide for the haunted walk of ottawa so those are my credentials today spooky it's amazing it's basically a ghost badge i try so instead of a special guest host you're actually a spooky guest host oh a ghost host i try a ghost host (laughs) so what's our scenario this year last year we were sitting around a campfire there were no snacks, I seem to remember, and there were like ghostly, like howling and things around us. What? Where are we now? Oh, um, maybe we're in a spooky drawing room. Oh yes, we could go for a drawing room vibe. Yes, yeah, like the Airbnb that no one chose for some mysterious reason. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, creaky doors, creaky floors. Mm. Mysteriously yeah. cheap Airbnb, even though it's gorgeous in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Victorian manse with the uh, with yeah. the owner that you never quite can pin down as, are they alive or are they not alive? Yeah, the door key, unlocky box code thing is 666. Mm. And there's always, there's always one door that you can't go in. Oh, yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah, it's got like three locks on it, but you don't know where the keys are. And for some reason, it's really cold, but only periodically. Mm. <laughs> but only at the top of the stairs. And only at 3 a.m. Yep. <laughs> the relative humidity is out of control as well terrifying definitely oh ooh, nope scarier than a ghost i mean already this is pretty good i like it i, I think so <laughs> right so we're in a drawing room do we have a fire or will it just mysteriously not light Ooh, uh, no i feel like there must be a fire i feel like we have to keep warm okay. somehow if the ghosts are like cr- crowding in and sort of sapping all our warmth then we're gonna Agreed. have to yeah. okay okay i think that adds to the atmosphere i think that's all right i think so yeah yeah, oh, yeah. mysteriously you can smell pipe smoke even though none of us are smoking oh mm. you're welcome <laughs> It's hard to know which direction to take this in now. Um, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, I was going to start by saying that I actually have uh, a sort of piece of news that I found in Icon News that I thought was oddly timely. And it's just that there's... No way! Just that there's new guidance on, like, bats in, like, historic buildings and stuff. Oh! Um, Are they all Dracula, so we have to leave them alone? uh, I mean, basically, yes. I mean, those are the rules. You have to leave (laughs) bats alone. That's that's how it is. Not because they're Dracula, though. No, that's true. Just because they're adorable and endangered. Basically, Historic England has published new guidance on uh, building works and bats, uh, which has been uh, developed in collaboration with the Bat Conservation Trust, National Trust, Natural England, and English Heritage. And I love bats. We should look after our bats. So, you know, bats in buildings, that's a thing. It's not their fault they look a bit creepy. No, no, they're they're pretty cute, actually. The small ones are nice and furry. You can get, like, those big, like, the fruit bats that live in tropical parts of the world that are like they have like a two foot wingspan oh yeah those ones i imagine getting swooped by them would be terrifying yes i suppose so yeah yeah true that's true and if you live in those parts of the world then well i would love to hear from you and what you think of uh, fruit bats (laughs) 
Um, anyway, so the, I thought that was just vaguely topical. And if you want to hear more about bats, you should check out our church episode because we did a whole thing on bats in that. Yeah, we did. Bat poo, particularly. But yes. So now maybe moving on to more spooky things because I think bats are cute, not necessarily very spooky. Oh, I'm going to start us off with a poem, which sounds very strange. Oh, well, I don't think we've ever had a poem on the show before, have we? Maybe we haven't. This might be the first. This is not my poem. And it's actually, actually a haiku. Uh, it was Random Act of Poetry Day a little while ago and True's Yard Museum, which has actually come up before in our previous Halloween episode uh, as a haunted place, contributed a little poem because it was October and they were feeling spooky and I just loved it so much. The ghost remembers staring at lost property hidden behind glass. I just thought it was so sweet. And I also love the notion that ghosts can wander around our museums and go, that's mine, you know. I quite like that. Oh my God, of course. Do you think they would be haunting the museum or would they be haunting the objects? Oh, that's a good question. Why not a bit of both? Why not a bit of both? Yeah. Maybe there's touring ghosts. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, how cool would that be though if you had an exhibit that was on tour and it had a ghost attached to it and then every place that exhibit stopped reported like a weird sighting or like strange temperature dips in places. How cool would that be? That would be so cool. I mean, you say that, but I genuinely have a story like that because I looked into... Oh my God, what? You have to share it. Share it. Share it. I mean, it's not, it's not my story, okay, guys? I just did some <laughs> internet research, which is called looking up haunted museums online. Calm down, everyone. Also, I have no haunted stories at all in home or work life because I'm not someone that ever sees or experiences ghosts in any way. So that would be that would be the worst expectation. And also a skeptic for this episode if we had to do that. <laughs> I expect nothing else of you. You are Scully to my Mulder. You're all right. It's true. Maybe there's a rational explanation. Anyway, but speaking of touring ghosts, one of the stories I came across was the uh, ghost of uh, Claude Monet. <laughs> visited the cleveland museum of art because his work was on ex- uh, was on show there which i thought was um, quite interesting um oh my god the loudest ice cream truck in the world can you hear that i can hear it i can hear it <laughs> okay that that's not a that spooky, is the worst thing uh, cheapest airbnb type mm. environment and it depends where is the airbnb mm. is it in a built-up area true it would be like something right out of a movie where you have like the old Victorian house in the middle of the built up neighborhood. The one that's like partially boarded up. That sounds like, isn't, wasn't that an episode of Doctor Who? That was definitely an episode of Doctor Who. Oh, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that just reminds me, I saw a great spoof video uh, just yesterday, actually. And it was a comedian basically doing every haunted house film ever. And it's spot on. I watched that this morning. Hilarious. Oh, Wow. Please put that in the show notes. Yeah, please put that in the show notes. That sounds great. It's so good. I will link to it. I will. Yeah. So supposedly, and this is actually not the only dead artist they've had surveying their art on show. So I feel like Cleveland Museum of Art attracts some strange vibes. I have so many questions. Interesting. Well, they do also report that they have uh, one of their old curators roaming the galleries as well. What? Are you sure they don't have just have a ghost and occasionally the ghost pretends to be Claude Monet? Well, to dress us up. But yeah, Cleveland uh, Museum of Art has, has some stories. When do you think a travelling, as in loaning or lent, ghost becomes visible? When the objects are installed in the cases or when the lighting is complete? I would say probably when the objects are installed in the cases, because then they can like poke around and make sure that everything is like displayed Ooh. correctly. And then if they have any issues with the lighting or with the vinyl or with the flow or anything, they can make that known. Like they can have an impact on the layout. That's what I'd like to think. 
That would actually be a huge help. <laughs> if the objects, haunted objects installed in the galleries could occasionally just pop up to conservation and be like, just so you're aware, RH is 65 downstairs and the dehumidifier yep. is full. And that would be so helpful. That would be ideal. It'd be like Casper, the friendly ghost, except it would be a friendly conservation ghost. I feel like all of this is about delivery, though. Like... The way in which they deliver that message is that that's sort of key, I feel like. If it's like a friendly knock on the door and so on, you know, poking your head through the door and sort of going, just so you know, that's different than them appearing halfway through the table that you're working at and just sort of going, ahem. Yeah, true. So, ghosts, if you're listening, these are some things to, you know, keep in mind when you're trying to talk to conservation. Basically, that wasn't the only place that came up when I looked for, like, haunted museums and or haunted objects. The Fort Worth Museum of Science and History has a ghost who tidies away toys in the play area, which I like. Helpful. I like a tidy ghost. Like a child or an adult or... In what way have they been seen? I feel like the curator sort of came out and said that they thought they might be like a tidying up sort of ghost who's like, oh, toys, they're sort of everywhere. Maybe I should help. So, but but that's that's quite nice. Like, I feel like that's a helpful ghost. I don't know that I would want one in my lab. If it was someone whose whose job was to work with the children, like um, a nanny or a governess or something like that, then it would make sense to have a ghost hanging around and picking up after children. Well, yeah, and it's definitely not the only story. Like uh, historic houses are full of sort of stories of like nannies and stuff like that who who seem to be interested in the presence of children and uh, potentially looking after their belongings, which you know is all right. Uh, the Penang War Museum in Malaysia uh, has an extremely dark past and is considered one of the most haunted locations in Asia. Um, and the Smithsonian has some has several ghosts, some of which are donors, early curators, and other staff members, and of course also its founder. They just seem to be collecting people, to be honest. Uh, I really enjoyed that uh, a paleontologist who used to live in one of the towers with his cat got mentioned. Unclear if the cat is still involved, but the paleontologist is. It just makes you think of historic sites, too, in general. Like, I know there's a really famous video from Hampton Court Palace just outside of London of a door swinging open and then a figure in, like, Tudor-era dress closing it and you know, a lot of investigation has been done into it, but security is, was like, no one was on site that day, no reenactors, there were like no sensors were tripped in that part of the building. And it just makes you think about all these historic sites that have all their offices and labs on site. Do people get to know the ghosts that are there? Like, do they experience something and they're like, oh no, it's just, you know, it's just Sheila tripping the sensors again. Don't worry about it. Like, what is that like? I'm so curious. Oh, but generally, I have read some accounts that are sort of very much like that. If you're like sort of a long-standing volunteer or caretaker somewhere or a member of staff, then the, several people have said that they basically go into certain spaces where they feel funny and sort of go, oh, hello, Mrs. Such-and-Such. I'm, I'm just here to collect the pest traps. Don't worry, I'll get on my way soon. Um, and sort of have a sort of relationship with their house ghosts, which I think is sort of sweet. House ghost. I love that. It's just being courteous. At Ham House and Garden, uh, for, first of all, anywhere called Ham House sounds hilarious, um, boasts as many as 15 ghosts roaming its halls and uh, also reports the presence of a strange scent drifting down the corridors at certain times. What kind of strange scent? I didn't find an exact account of what that is. Other places have certainly said something like pipe smoke or cigar smoke uh, without anyone smoking on the premises. Somewhere else had um, 
the sort of scent of uh, a burning fire, which panicked people and made them evacuate. But actually, there was no fire. Mm. See, that's that's proper. That's proper frightening museum story like you'd have to evacuate the whole museum and get the fire brigade and start on your emergency plan oh my god although i mean the fire alarms didn't go off it was just the smell of smoke which you know is alarming enough to get people out i would say um and other places have reported things like a strong smell of flowers for example or perfume so i don't know exactly what goes on at ham house presumably it doesn't smell like ham <laughs> um but the best bit about Ham House and Gardens is that they have a paranormal puppy. Interesting. What? Uh-huh. They have uh, a ghost dog, a small puppy, uh, who is presumably looking for its owners, which is both sad and adorable all at once. Aww. How do they know the difference between the different ghosts? And how do they know it's a ghost puppy and not a ghost dog? I mean, I'm guessing size. Okay. Maybe. Have you ever had any paranormal animals? Mm, paranormal animals. So the buildings we typically bring people through at the Haunted Walk of Ottawa, well, we don't have records of animals being there. But some of the other places that uh, that we tour through in, in our three cities, Ottawa, Toronto, and Kingston, guides have heard dogs barking, you know, like it felt like a cat was rubbing against your ankles. Aww. Those kinds of things. So I don't know if those are connected to, to the places, to the people in those places, or, or what exactly it is. But there's definitely been... People have said that they've like heard dogs before. I wouldn't mind a cat haunting. Oh, that would be fine. I don't know. It depends on the cat, surely. I mean, it's fine if it's like True. lying in a sunbeam purring, <laughs> but if it's just pushing all your stuff off the table, that would be super annoying. That's true. Just like batting you awake at two o'clock in the morning. Oh my God, Chester, <laughs> go away, Chester. You know what surprises me? That more natural history museums aren't haunted because there's, that's a lot of animals. Yeah. But of course. I mean, how how would you even be haunted by like a whale? <laughs> you just hear the sound, like their, their noises, like in the dark at night. You're like, well, where's it coming from? You look up at the skeleton hanging from the ceiling and you can just hear the like the clicking or the keening or whatever. Oof. Uh-uh. No thanks. sort of peaceful. Is that weird? <laughs> it's probably a little bit weird. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, anyway, <laughs> Lime in Greater Manchester has a ghostly funeral procession that's presumably been going on for like 600 years because that person died in the 1400s. What? Is it the same people every time? Really? I mean, it seemed like it because the sort of account was about how they figure it's for the, f I think it was the founder of the building, if you see what I mean, like the, the first occupants of the person who built it. Essentially, they said that his mistress was sort of sort of trailing behind the funeral procession because she wasn't family, and like that's that's an interesting bit of drama, isn't it? Like eternal drama. Huh. I really enjoyed this. Uh, Manchester Museum um, had a four thousand year old Egyptian statue turn in its case in twenty thirteen. Rotate by itself. Ooh. Um, I have a feeling we talked about that one last time. Yeah, and I yeah. remember seeing it in the videos uh, when it was happening. Yeah. Very spooky. Very, very spooky. Unsurprising. Doesn't the British Museum also have something like that? Yeah, I was going to say, unsurprisingly, the British Museum is hugely haunted. Uh, they, they seem to vary quite wildly in terms of what's happening or where it's happening, who's happening. Uh, but uh, it seems like there's there's been plenty of occasions where the BM is haunted. Hey, maybe some people want this stuff back. I was just about to say that. Yep. Yeah, people like, hi, you've had this for 2,000 years now. <laughs> so much shade 
I love that the National Maritime Museum got a mention because of all its potential ghost ship stories and things related to that sort of level of folklore. Ghost ships? Uh, but like, what? obviously they don't have ghost ships, although that would be immense if they did, because how amazing would it be as like, <laughs> turn up a surprise ship in the ex- exhibition hall one day, like, oh, has that always been there? <laughs> Is that accession? Surely it needs a massive surface clean. Maybe it's fresh. Maybe it's fresh off whatever <laughs> plane of existence um, ghost ships normally occupy. I wonder if anyone with historic docks have ever seen like the wake of a ship coming in, but no ship. Oh, I love mm. that notion. Or you see them off in the distance, but then when you know you watch them get closer, oh, they kind of disappear. Yeah. Or a fog rolls in. Oh, I love it. There is an area on the west coast of North America. It's the Strait of Juan de Fuca. So it's right around where British Columbia and Washington State meet um, near the American-Canadian border. And it's known as the Graveyard of the Pacific because it has so many shipwrecks. And over the years, so many stories of people transversing this incredibly perilous stretch of sea have said that they've seen a shipwreck like on the rocks, like people clinging to the ropes, screaming, crying, begging for help. But when they try to navigate closer to save the people, the shipwrecks just disappear into the fog. Oh, wow. Mm. And when you, when you visit places like Victoria on Vancouver Island, where the, the people from these shipwrecks would have been brought after they were rescued, the buildings in downtown Victoria, for example, are just inundated with stories of of ghost hauntings and occurrences that have lingered from these survivors and the people who passed away in these shipwrecks having been brought up onto shore and, and been, you know, laid out to be identified in those buildings. And it's just, oh man, things from shipwrecks, like how, how much do they still hold after the fact, be it places, be it things that have been salvaged? I don't know. Let's hear from the Mary Rose. Mm. And the Vasa. Mm, yes. Hey. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Who oh. is it? Who's that? Who's there? Oh, I don't know. I didn't know that we, we had a, we had guests coming. Oh, guys, this is going to be trick-or-treaters. Don't worry. Oh, d- oh, yay. Do we have sweets or do we have, like, apples and stuff? We've got some conservation-grade sweets, so it's just sugar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So no mini Mars bars. No, 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 no. Nothing melty or, like, sticky. No, no, no. It's, it's just sugar. Oh, okay. It's just sugar. Okay. Sugar in little acid-free wrappers. It's beautiful. Okay. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Trick or treat. Oh, and what are you supposed to be? Oh, I'm a bottle of unlabeled chemical solution that you found in the back of a cabinet. Oh, that's horrifying. Here, take some sweets. <laughs> Go away. Thanks for coming. Now leave. <laughs> now, where were we? Oh, can I tell you about something really spooky I got a chance to work on last year after we recorded yes? this episode from last oh, year? Of course you can. So... <laughs> Uh, when we recorded this episode last year, my team and I were just getting started working on the agricultural uh, warehouse for uh, on Ingenium's campus, and we've since finished it. We've made some incredible progress. But one of the things I got to work on was a sleigh hearse. A what now? Like a hearse on skis. Oh. Like a, a sleigh that's also a oh. hearse. So it was used in northern Quebec for a... 40 or 50 years, I believe, in the late um, 19th wow. century, early 20th century. And when we pulled it down off of the racking so that we could, you know, prepare it to move, I opened up the back to check inside and the inside of the doors were covered Ooh. in mold. So of course, you know, I had to deal with that. But then this is, this is this huge, like six foot long pine box essentially on skis. So I had to crawl inside it to make sure that the mold hadn't gone any further than the doors. Oh my God. And so at one point I was lying inside the hearse with my flashlight (laughs) and, you know, my phone getting ready to take photos 
full, like full on PPE. And I roll over to look at the other side and I'm on my back in the hearse. And I thought, okay, all right, this is how I <laughs> oh die. Oh my God. Oh, I found this um, video, by the way, that was, uh, it was supposed to be um, like 10 haunted objects in museums, but I felt like most of them were sort of like, yeah, because they were, a lot of them came from museums of horror or of mysteries or like, you know, that sort of thing. And I was like, I'm not really into it, but there were a couple, well, I suppose one that I remember that was from like a more well-known museum and it was a bed from the V&A, like a really, really big bed, but apparently the sort of the ghost of the person who made it doesn't really enjoy people enjoying the bed <laughs> like looking at or sitting on no if if they get in and get a bit amorous then uh, oh. <laughs> then <laughs> allegedly he pinches them to make them stop <laughs> no way wow why did they choose pinching are they trying to stop them or encourage them <laughs> <laughs> oh imagine how horrified and annoyed the ghost would be if it just encouraged them <laughs> This sort of thing has changed since my day. He's probably thinking. <laughs> <laughs> is it the Great Bed of Ware? I might be. Oh my God, it's amazing. Oh, that sounds familiar. It's huge. I think I saw that on, on uh, social media the other day. They're like, yeah, you could fit four couples side by side in here. That No, that's the one. That's the one for sure. Oh, wow. Oh, again. Oh, uh, it's okay. We have more sweets. We're all right. We're all right. Oh, good. Good. I don't want to be egged. Trick or treat! I'm a statue with bronze disease. I know, very scary. Oh my god, that is horrifying! Take these sweets and go away. Ooh. Take, oh god, go uh, away! Nope. Take them and nope, go away. Nope. Nope. Oh god, let's let's get back to the fire. Mm-hmm. Yes, please. It is very drafty. I don't like it. I don't like it. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Is that dripping water? I hear. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's not right. Someone should look at that. Yeah, we'll we'll tell the uh, Airbnb host that not only is it uh, really creepy in here, but I'm going to put a bucket underneath that. That'll be soothing. The dripping noise in the background. Thanks. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh! So last year, right? Um, I had this book called Ghosts, Mysterious Tales from the National Trust. Oh yeah, I remember you talking about it. But I only got about you know two thirds through it. Oh, that's perfect, though. And now I have read the rest, and I found a couple of ones that, I mean, it's probably generous to call them conservation-related, but they certainly mention conservation in some form, so I'm going to go with I'm going to read them out. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this one is from Dunster Castle in Somerset, and it goes thusly. At 8.30am on one very hot August morning, a member of the conservation cleaning staff had a distinctly unnerving encounter. Can I stop you there? That is the most perfectly not haunted story setting. I love it so much already. <laughs> it was really warm. It was August. It was really nice and sunny outside. It was the morning. Was the morning. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> not even the night. <laughs> Please continue. <sighs> Guys, I'm ruining everything. Sorry. <clears throat> she had vacuumed the wooden floorboards in the gallery and was in the process of polishing them with the electric polishing machine. It was heavy work in intense sunlight, but as she was working towards the window, she was suddenly aware the temperature had plummeted and all the hairs on the back of her neck rose. She was also conscious that someone had entered the room and was standing at the top of the stairs. Turning around, to her amazement, she saw the shadowy figure of a man in old-fashioned military uniform standing in the doorway to the corridor. Alarmed, but with her escape route cut and cut off, she decided that the noise from the polishing machine would scare off any ghost who would come to investigate, so she turned back and carried on. Within about 30 seconds, the ice-cold feeling ceased and the temperature returned to normal. 
Even before she turned to look, she knew the figure had gone. Oh. I really enjoy that she scared it off with a polishing machine. Yeah. I got goosebumps on that one. First of all, that is a sensible woman, isn't it? <laughs> I'm just going to carry on. <laughs> I'm just going to carry on. Probably fine. Although it kind of makes sense when you think about it that the mundane is the antithesis to the extraordinary. So you would use the mundane polishing floors to scare away the extraordinary, the ghost. But also maybe he was just curious. Like, we didn't have those in my day. <laughs> what an extraordinary machine. <laughs> Spooky, though. I like it. What I want to know is whether, with these mysterious drops in temperature, what I want is for someone with, like, one of the digital thermohydrographs to just see whether there's also a corresponding drop in RH. Rise in RH, excuse me. Mm. I, I really like that. Um, because speaking of which, this is from Donna Massey in Cheshire. And essentially... Oh, I love it there. It's nice. So... Like many old houses, Dunham is believed to retain the spirits of former residents. Most of the paranormal activities reported uh, to centre on the oak bedroom, which suffers from sudden inexplicable drops in temperature. Mm-hmm. And raises an RH. Possibly indicative of supernatural appearances. A former house steward decided to put stories of ghostly goings-on to rest by spending the night in the bedroom. He was woken in the early hours, convinced that there was someone leaning over him with their hands around his throat Mm-mm. and refused to repeat the exercise. Ugh, with arms around his throat, did you say, or hands? Hands. Ugh. Describing himself as very unbelieving, the property manager is at a loss to explain how the Hanwell monitor, oh. name dropping, which records changes in temperature and humidity, in the oak bedroom, oh. frequently records sudden, unexplained and short-lived drops in temperature, usually at 3 a.m. What? What? The monitoring equipment has been both changed and checked on a number of occasions, yet it keeps happening, but what? only in this room. That's science, people. That's okay. science. What? Yeah. That's okay. definitive proof of something. No, wait. I can science this out. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> can you? Can you really? You tried to rationalize everything we said last year. I'm looking forward to seeing you try to rationalize Give me a minute, one. all right? Give me a minute. <laughs> Hey, they checked the equipment many times. And it's a, its not like it's a knockoff. It's Hanwell. Come on. Top notch. I want to know what happens to the RH. I want that information. <laughs> okay. It's now your job to go to this place in Cheshire and ask. All right. I'm writing it down. <laughs> and then we will sleep in the oak bedroom and see how it goes. Haunted, you can. Yeah. I'm not doing that haunted. Oh, but you've never well. had an encounter, so it's more exciting <laughs> if you sleep in there with me. Yeah, you know what? You need to have a first first ghost encounter. <laughs> I don't want to be lent over by a ghost. I reckon there are drafts, right? And it's something to do with historic heating coming on or off or whatever, mm. right? And then, but is there heating? Is the building heated? Like, does it even have that infrastructure? I don't know, Ali. (laughs) (laughs) You're trying to find a reason for it, and I'm trying to be illogical. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I want to see the. I want to see the the charts. All right, show me the charts. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) This one is from Powers Castle. Most of the after-hours activity at Powers seems to focus on the ballroom wing. A magnificent grand piano, we talked about pianos last time, graces the long, narrow 18th century ballroom. Mm -hmm. The staff have heard the haunting sounds of piano music when they know the room is empty and locked. 
On one occasion, the house manager and a conservator went to the ballroom together to speak to the piano tuner whom they believed to be working there. As they climbed the stairs, they clearly heard the piano being played, but when they entered the room, the piano was silent and no one was in the room. Oh. I mean, that's good. That's good stuff. So they thought like the piano that. tune was in. Was the contractor not being supervised? I mean... Like, where, where is the fair? piano tune? Was he lost? Maybe he was having a coffee somewhere, away from the piano, because he's I mean, a responsible true. piano tuner. Potentially, yeah. What I want to know, though, is what led them to believe that the piano tuner was in? I mean, someone will have booked him in. They don't just turn up. They're not free range. <laughs> oh, I see. Right, right, right. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah, pianos were a recurring theme in last year's stories. I remember that. Yeah, they're always creepy. Do harps have the same kind of thing? Ooh. I, I feel like we haven't heard any harp stories. Do you ever get, like, saxophones being played, or is it just a bit much? I don't know. You know what, though? Instruments being played is something that I think is more common than we realize, but there might be a reason for that. So, um... Oh, mm. oh, oh. <laughs> I, I don't know if you could call this one a ghost story quite so much as just a coincidence, but right now, myself and my work buddy are working in the environmental controlled, temperature controlled areas in the, uh, the, the warehouses, and we're prepping a lot of like delicate things like instruments ready to move over to the new um, Ingenium Center for the purpose-built storage there. And there was this whole bunch of like music boxes, like uh, players, um, where they've got the cylinders and, you know, they, they click along. I can't remember the, the technical name for them. Classically creepy, mm. those. Right? And several of them in the 80s and 90s, there was a program where my institution would have them like restored and brought back to working order. And then they would be brought out regularly to show people how these instruments worked. Well, I assessed like, I don't know, 10 or 12 of them ranging from like small tabletop size to like full, like stand up chest size ones in preparation to move. And I obviously wanted to make sure they were still working. So I played a couple of them and we had at that point, we had some pretty solid fluctuations in that room because we were in the middle of a heat wave outside. So that obviously affects the inside and we'd have like up and downs in temperatures. And I guess one day it must've just fluctuated too much because one of them started playing again while I'm like sitting there, like it's already on the palette, it's ready oh. to go. I had played it like two days oh. earlier and I shut it off and it started playing again. And I was like, what the hell is going on? Mm. And I turned around and it was just, I guess, oh, no. I'm not entirely certain what it was, but like the disc inside had like slipped down a couple of the notches. So it was only like three or four notes, but it was enough to make you turn around because I was alone in the room at the time. And I turned around and I was like, oh my God, what is this? And it had just played like ting, 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 ting. Oh. And then I stopped and I went and I like, I, oh. I tied the switch down so that it wouldn't keep playing because I was so afraid it was going to keep going. It was terrifying to just be working away by yourself and then to hear these player pianos and these music boxes just start going. That is creepy. I've just remembered. Now, I'm not saying that this is a ghostly, like, I'm not saying I believe it, but a spooky thing happened to me the other month. Oh, and I've only just remembered. My colleague was on maternity leave and because of pandemic and opening times and stuff, I used to unlock the building and then be on my own in the building for like 45 minutes or something like that, depending on you know how bad the traffic was and how early I got, got in. I was in the loo next to my studio. I heard my colleague come into my studio and say something and I got out of the loo and there was no one in my studio. 
So I went downstairs to see what my colleague wanted, and I was the only person in the museum. Ooh. Classic haunting. What did I hear, guys? What did I hear? It's pretty creepy. I'm pretty sure, right, that it was just the cafe downstairs. Oh, that would make sense. And the, the sound traveled up through the stairwell. Yeah. Would that sound like it's in that room, though? Yeah. The ghost doesn't, there's no ghost that has a fob, so it can go into the studio. <laughs> Ghosts you know? don't need fobs. That's the beautiful thing about being a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> Why would it need to open the door then? Like, you can't mess about with magnets. Uh, maybe it's just a very respectful ghost and it doesn't want to go where it's technically not allowed. Uh, okay. So it came in, said hello, thought, oh, no, no. Oh, my bad. She's not in here. Yeah. I'll go. Yeah. Bad. yeah. Right, right. Okay. Although you, you talk a big game, Chloe. You're always like, I'm a skeptic. I don't believe it. And then, you know, these stories come up and you're like, oh, that's, <laughs> that's spooky and I don't want to know about them. I'm like, I, I think there's a little bit of you that truly believes, even if you don't want to admit it to yourself. I, well, that's, I have no evidence from my own experience. And also, right, CCTV. Surely, if there were ghosts... Museums have CCTV these days. No, but every now and then things do get caught on camera. Yeah. And not all yeah, ghosts manifest they? in a visible way. Yeah. Right. So that reminds me of another story that I saw. And it wasn't something that was caught on camera because, you know, in historic houses, you often don't have the cameras, you know, in every room or something because you ruin <clears throat> the decor. Well, they should. You ruin the decor if you do. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, I suppose these days we could maybe do a GoPro type thing or something, but we... I bet. Yeah, yeah. Think of the visitor numbers. But, you know, um, but basically, I think it was a panic button that, you know, is is oh. used during open hours in case something happens. And that's <clears> stored <throat> in a locked drawer away in a room out of hours. Um, and essentially, the panic button went off one night and they went to the property and they were like, well, the panic button should be locked away anyway, but we need to turn off the alarm. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so what's up with that? And the panic button was on a chair in the middle of the room not in the store and they were like that's weird we'll oh. put it back oh wow um and then they locked everything up again and when they came in the morning the cleaner opened up the room and the panic button was back in the middle of the room and not in the store <laughs> and it's just like oh come on <laughs> what and oh my like, god that's amazing leave it leave it alone <laughs> and maybe this is what really happens to all of my pest traps that are in new locations all the time <laughs> Trick or treat. Oh, and what exactly is your costume? What do you mean you don't know what I am? I'm the scariest thing ever. A single furniture beetle in a, a blunder trap full of wood lice. I like it. Oh, I see it now. Oh, well done. Have some sweets. Oh, <laughs> gross. Oh, that's so cute. Gotta love trick or treaters. How many sweets do we have left? Uh, no, no we got, we've got a fair few, actually. We're not. We're not okay. Do you want some? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I mean, just help yourself to one of the bags. Thanks. It's Thank all right. You. Thank you. That's good. If there's any left over, I'm so claiming some. Oh, something else that I found, by the way, was that I found... This is from last year, basically. It was the US National Archives made a really funny video. There was uh, 10 things that terrify archivists. It was clearly Halloween themed. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I just thought I'd, I'd tell you about some of the things that terrify archivists and we can see whether we think, well, maybe 10 things that scare conservatives, I guess. I mean, this would, you know, apply to quite a lot of paper conservatives as well, I have to say. But the, the number one was the adhesive tape. That's a clear one, right? Adhesive tape is the oh, worst. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a clear one. <laughs> and then it was improvised paper clips. I really enjoyed this because it had visuals with it. And the improvised paper clips included a nail. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, Pins, yeah. like sewing needles. 
Uh, next was rubber bands, which I think we can all agree is the devil. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Nightmare. Rusty yeah. staples, obviously. Mm-hmm. Coffee stains. Mm-hmm. That's a very specific sort of paper thing, I feel. You'll get that on furniture, though, sometimes, like water rings and stuff. Yeah, you totally do. Like water yeah. rings. Yeah, yeah, for yeah, sure, for sure. Yeah, you do. And then it got a bit weird because then the next one was vintage fireworks and it did just look like they were like little rolls of paper. So I'm guessing they have been found in archives collections and I'm like, oh, that's horrendous. I do not like that. Yeah, that would terrify me. Yeah. Next was snakeskins and it was just a picture of a piece of paper with some snakeskin in it. <laughs> well, snakeskin is better than the actual snake. So uh, yeah, sure. It depends on the state of the snake, I suppose. Uh, next up was moleskins and I, I'm wondering if that's a that's a pun because obviously moleskin is a turbo type of journal or like it's like a brand of journal. yes it is yes um, but, yeah, yeah. but this was literally skins <laughs> of moles <laughs> uh next was termite damage which did look very terrifying oh i mean i'm gonna broaden that to just pest damage to be honest nitrate film obviously yeah. highly flammable they ended on treasure hunters with a picture of N- nicholas cage <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, definitely a menace to the archives of the world. So maybe I should add Indiana Jones to that list. <laughs> Please do. Yeah, yeah. Are there other terrifying things we would add to the list of things to scare conservators? What would our 10 mm-hmm. be? Oh my God, are there? Yes, yes. So as I, as I said, I... Oh, I set Ali off. I set Ali off. <laughs> <laughs> as I said at the top of the episode, I work in what can be argued is Canada's most hazardous collection. Ooh. My top 10 list of scariest things in a collection are literally just hazards, right? <laughs> yeah. so we've got asbestos. We've got PCBs. We've got Ooh. biohazards, both animal and human. We have oh, mold. Perfect. We have mercury. We have lead. We have cadmium. We have beryllium. That's oh. that's only eight things. Uh, what else do we have? We had stored mechanical energy because you don't want a rocket's oh, yeah. you know, wings to spring out at you. Yeah, we, you know, like that was only nine, and I'm all of a sudden blanking on a tenth hazard. But like, <laughs> You're that's well, dangerous. Though. Oh, medications, <laughs> historic medications. Oh, yes. yeah. Okay, that's that's my top ten <laughs> terrifying things in a museum collection. Is literally just hazards, and having dealt with all of them in the last year. Oh man, this Halloween's going to be a piece of cake. <laughs> I was going to ask Ali since our last recording. Mm-hmm. What have your tours been like our tour season this year was truncated obviously because of covid so we haven't really been able to have the same intensity of experiences and the same the same number of tours yeah. so like we haven't been able to go inside any of the buildings but what i have noticed is that this summer there have been a lot more like locals who've been coming on the tours so i've been hearing a lot of stories of people who worked in these buildings or have been to those buildings oh. who had strange encounters so that dynamic has oh. changed because normally or not normally but pre-pandemic it would be a lot more people from out of town so they wouldn't have that kind of interaction with the buildings for example one part of city hall is an old normal school so it's an old teacher's college and it is believed uh, that one of the earliest uh, instructors and supervisors at the school remains there so her name is miss eliza bolton and she taught from the 1880s up until her retirement in 1915 and over the years the security guards in the building have gotten into the habit of playing pranks on each other they've taken a life-size cardboard cutout of a woman dressed in old-fashioned clothing and they'll hide her in the shadows and under stairwells and in the doorway, sometimes even in the windows behind us when we're outside telling stories, hoping that they can scare someone 
wife. And over the years, several of these security guards have like seen her and have interacted with her, like not just as a cardboard cutout, but like the actual ghost of Miss Bolton. And so many people have said that she is very much still a, um, like a taskmaster. Like you have to follow the rules. Like if you're there and you're sleeping on the job, you get woken up, you know, that kind of thing. Or if you're being loud late at night, you get told to shush. And uh, a woman came on my tour a few, a few weeks ago and she told me that she used to work in that building because today it's part of the city hall complex, but she would get a ride into town, into downtown with a family member who needed to be there earlier. So like any self-respecting person who was woken up way too early, she would go up into the staff lounge on the top floor and she'd sleep for an extra hour or two before she needed to be at her desk. But every single morning, about half an hour before she needed to be at her desk, she would be shaken awake. And when she would open her eyes, she would be the only person in the lounge. Oh, no. I've heard a lot of stories similar to this where people working in these buildings who've who've eaten in the buildings that have now become restaurants or hotels or whatever have had their experiences over the years and they've shared them with us. Oh, I love that. That's good. That's how things have changed since last year. A friend of mine, there's some... Because we all know hotels are haunted, right? Like, it's just kind of a given at this point. Are they? <laughs> the Fairmont Chateau Laurier Hotel. <laughs> um, but the Fairmont Chateau Laurier Hotel, it opened in 1912. And the president of the Grand Trunk Railway, who kind of spearheaded the whole project, he died on the Titanic. He didn't make it back for the grand opening. Um, and many people believe that his ghost is in the hotel. And a really good friend of mine actually worked at the hotel for two years. And she said that when she was doing her orientation and was being taken around the building and shown where all of the spaces were and where she'd be working, her manager at the time pointed to a set of doors in the basement because the hotel is across the street from the old train station and there used to be a tunnel connecting the two. The tunnel is closed today for security reasons and such and such. But um, <laughs> when when my friend was being onboarded, the manager pointed to these doors and is like, these doors don't open. They're always locked. We don't have access to the keys. But every once in a while, you hear screaming from the other side. Uh, Don't worry about it. It it happens occasionally, but just like, you know, it's no big deal. And (laughs) my friend is like, what? Uh-huh. <laughs> what? And she's a huge skeptic. So she, she was taken aback, but she didn't really believe it. And so I asked her, like, after she told me this, she, she'd left the hotel, you know, for a few years by that point when she told me this. I was like, so did you, did you ever hear anything? Like, what happened? She's like, no, I never did. But every once in a while, a coworker would come upstairs and they'd be like completely ashen and like shaking and said that they heard something from the other side of the door. <laughs> And I'm just like, how are you nonchalant about this? <laughs> how are you not terrified? Because that's like a pretty haunted building. She's like, yeah, you know, like I never heard anything, but people would hear stuff in the stairwells or like they'd put something down and then they'd come back to it 10 minutes later and it would have moved. And she's like rattling off all of these things that happened to her coworkers. And I'm like, why did you stay there for two years? I would have left immediately. <laughs> There's something there's something so tantalizing about a locked door, though, isn't it? While you were telling that story, Ali, uh, my cat jumped down from somewhere and scared the living daylights out of me. <laughs> I didn't hear a yelp or anything. I'm very disappointed. How do we feel about cemeteries, guys? Love them or hate them? Love them in the daytime. Uh, terrified of them at night. <laughs> oh, Chloe, opinions? Uh, ambivalent. At any time of day? The the historic value is very interesting, but I do feel a bit sort of ghoulish looking. Mm-hmm. Like uh, there's only so many sort oh, okay. of died age 
died age 25 and joined after by loving husband or something three years later. There's only so many of those I can cope with before I'm like, oh God, life was short and cruel. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I love cemeteries and graveyards. I love them so much. They're such a cool snapshot, right? Of history. I've always just loved them. And there was definitely a phase in my youth when I all I wanted to do was be like a cemetery caretaker. Um, like, which is just a gardener for the dead, really. Um, <laughs> this is just a strong vibe with me. Um, but it, I mean, it's fascinating to me because at that point, I will only have been exposed to sort of Swedish cemeteries, which are much more sort of garden-like in terms of their upkeep and care. I feel like I really enjoy the sort of more wild look of British cemeteries because they tend to be a little bit more overgrown or just they have a different look, right? Um, a completely different vibe as well. There's ivy everywhere and there's brambles and everything's beautiful and there's moss and you can see that some of the stones are just green and I don't know, I, I love it. I'm here for it. Uh, basically, I found something in, let's see, the Museums Journal from this summer. So that's July, August. And they had an um, an article written by John Holt that was called Life After Death. And essentially, it's all about cemeteries and sort of that they're a piece of hidden heritage that's sort of not explored very much. The Victorians were sort of all about their graveyards and their cemeteries. Like they, they really enjoyed them. And uh, basically in this article, they're sort of saying that now it's sort of like anyone from a, from goths to grave spotters who are sort of like tourists <laughs> who want to see like the famous people's graves or, you know, find someone in particular, not necessarily someone they're related to, to people who just want somewhere like nice and calm to like sit and eat their lunch or you know, just soak up the atmosphere to people who have like, who want to come and see like their spooky film screenings like of scary movies and uh, I just love that there's sort of all sorts of things that graveyards are used for. I really like them personally. When I was in my undergrad in my final year I took a seminar called Gravestones and Cemeteries where we kind of traced the the change in traditions uh, from like essentially the first European settlers to Canada and like how the the cemetery yeah. and funerary industry has grown in the last two centuries. And it was really interesting because we actually would go on field trips to different cemeteries around the cities and we would look at the the different iconography that was used over time and the different communities and like where they had space in the cemetery. And it was this really interesting way of kind of looking mm. back through the history of Ottawa and kind of recognizing the way things had changed and the way that society had changed. Uh, if, if cemeteries scare you, I definitely encourage you to shift your perspective and how you interact with them and how you look at them. And maybe that will hopefully help you get over your um, uncomfortableness with cemeteries. In this article, some, some of the people who sort of look after various sort of cemeteries were saying like they have people come just bird watching, like stuff like that. Oh. They have like kestrels running around and all sorts of things. <laughs> and it's like, oh, that's so sweet. Some places were definitely praising the fact that these have sort of become sort of wildlife havens and have an enormous amount of biodiversity mm -hmm. for being in cities, for example, that it's sort of like a slice of countryside, but in the middle of a town. Does anyone else feel weird walking in like really old historic churches where people are buried under the flagstones, like in the aisle and up in the nave? Do you ever feel weird just like walking over them? Like in the past when I visited like Westminster Abbey, I, I mean, is there any floor left that's unclaimed i don't know i always feel so weird i'm like i'm so sorry i'm so sorry it is a little bit weird but you were meant to you know and they 
you know, it's not like the expectation was that nobody would walk over those. Mm. I mean, in a way, it's it's sort of an homage to them wanting to continue to be part of that parish or that that's true that church church's life because essentially they're always there and they are part of very much the fabric of the church. <laughs> uh, and that so yeah 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 actually mm. it's it's mm-hmm. honoring them to to walk over over those graves which is a little bit odd but it's certainly a strange feeling but uh i think that's absolutely fine i think that's just part and parcel of what's what they were sort of signing yeah. up for what what they wanted oh i do love a good catacomb though catacombs have a completely different vibe from uh, from cemeteries i have to say has anyone been to the paris one i have i oh, have I yeah oh. <gasps> then you are both very lucky tell me everything it is so eerie and there's places where they've put up signage saying like, please don't take photos, but everybody obviously does. And as you move through the catacombs, there's information about like when they were created and like where these deposits originally came from and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's very um, educational, but at the mm-hmm. same time, you're like pressed in, in some places you're walking down these long corridors where on one side, it's just the stone and the ceiling is just mm-hmm. above you. And they're not like, they're not tall ceilings. I was there with two friends, one of whom is almost six feet tall, and she had to bend down in a couple of places to go through doorways. The bones are just like stacked up so high that in some places you can't even see the other side of the stack. Like they're so high. Wow. But the one thing I will, I will never forget is when you first get down and you go through, you go through like one or two rooms, but then as soon as you get into the first long stretch of corridor, right above the doorway into this corridor, it says, um, ceci est le, l'empire du mort. This is the empire of the mm. dead. And it just, I just remember getting like the spooky feeling, the goosebumps down the back of my neck. And it's cold down there too. So you can't, you can't <laughs> help it. You're like, is it the cold? Is it the, is it the bones? Is it just oh. the whole environment of the place? I would definitely recommend it, but wear good walking shoes because it is a very long wow. walk, but it is incredible. It is yeah. incredible. Yeah, I think I was too young when I went, and I I don't think I really appreciated the the full majesty of of the spooky. How old were you? Uh, eleven. Okay. With those, the thing that freaks me out is the 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 people stories about people getting lost in there mm. and like never coming out. Well, I can tell you that if you were to revisit now, that that's not a possibility. They have made the pathway unidirectional. So there's no wandering oh, off okay. into places and getting lost. There's like doorways that branch off onto other corridors, of course, but like those, they've got gates across them. They're locked shut. Like there's really only okay. one direction okay. you can go in. Uh, the only catacombs I've been in, uh, they were, I want to say St. Agatha's catacombs in Malta. And uh, they were super cool. Um, I would definitely wow. go to them again. Quite claustrophobic, but like uh, oddly cozy as well in a really weird way. Just being down there with loads of dead people. Yeah. No, it was a really good experience. I would totally do it again. Oh, who's that again? Let's go find out. Oh, trick or treat. Oh, oh my God. There's, uh, there's, there's more than one of you. I am a carpet beetle. Oh. I am oval shaped with white, brown and black patterns. <gasps> As a little larvae, I really enjoy nibbling on your textile collection. Trick or treat. 
I am a carpet beetle. Oh, oh my god, there's, there's more of you. Oh my god, there's so many. With white, brown, and black patterns. Trick or treat. As a larvae, I am a carpet beetle. I, really I am oval shaped with white, Tell brown, black Trick or treat. As I am a carpet beetle. I am really enjoyed nibbling on your textile collection. As a little larvae, I really enjoyed nibbling on your textile collection. No, good God! It's an actual infestation! No! Close the door, Jenny! Close the door! I really enjoyed nibbling on your textile collection. Please take all of this. Take, take all of it. I'm just leaving it here. I'm just leaving it here. Take it all and go. Take it all and go. Bye. Oh my god, that was terrifying and weird. I think we just leave. I mean, I'm not convinced I want to sleep in this Airbnb anyway. Has anyone noticed that the dripping has stopped as well? That's sort of unsettling because it's definitely still raining. Does Uber even come out here? I don't know. Let's just let's just walk to the nearest bus stop, I think. Yeah, everybody's got enough battery on their phone, right? We we won't get lost in the wilderness without any... I'm on 12%. Oh, no. oh great. <laughs> Why would you do anything on 12%, woman? We are, this is how we die. This is how I'm we actually die. recording on 35%. I've just noticed that my computer isn't charging. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, I am not leaving a good review for this for this Airbnb. <coughs> and now that we're done with most of the spookiness, we will return to the cemetery. Let's see who I've dug up. I'm Sheldon K. Goodman. I'm a public historian uh, focusing primarily on cemeteries and queer history. Mm. I am probably best known for my blog, Cemetery Club, which is now not really so much a blog. It's kind of, it's a space where people can see the wonder and joy and social value of cemeteries as not being mournful places, but just as every bit as relevant and as important as an art museum or a gallery. Mm. And my approach has always been to kind of humanise the stories which are usually beneath the stone. Because, you know, we have a preconception of what a cemetery is. Most of the time, you know, you walk into a cemetery and you obviously see lots of, uh, you know, monuments and tombs. And with that, there does come feelings of sadness, of poignancy, of reticence to admit that our life on this rock is is somewhat limited. Uh, but there, there is a joy that's to be found there. And it's just fascinating going uh, to, to use a better metaphor, to, to dig up history. Of course, that's not what I do. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of uh, rediscovering and getting back in touch with history that's often been lost or forgotten or what have you, and just, just basically making cemeteries uh, almost like a phone book of people, going to each grave, seeing, okay, so we've got three people here. Who are they? Oh, this person invented plastic. This person uh, sailed to Hong Kong in record time or, or whatever the reason might be. So I try to do it in as amiable, as affable, try to make it as accessible and interesting as possible as well at the same time. Yeah, a bit like an archive in 3D, I guess. Basically, yeah, that's that's a good way of putting an archive in 3D. I like that. How did this start? Why this? I had I, I started the blog originally with my friend uh, Christina and we, we worked together and we'd spend our kind of days off going to cemeteries because we, we found them pretty cool. You know, this is about... God, when was this? This was about 2013. Mm. So back at that point, cemeteries weren't viewed the way that they are now. Now you've got countless blogs and, you know, people getting involved with heritage projects and so on, kind of really seeing their worth. 
But it was just a way to pass time and spend an afternoon. And we go to places like Brompton or Hendon or, or any of the other cemeteries. And we'd just, you know, put a name into a, into a, into like a Google search and see what came up. Mm. And the fascinating thing that I found was that a lot of these lives that never, that they were never touched by the internet. They were never touched by social media. There was stuff there to be found. And it developed into, originally it was a, it was a blog that was twice a week. And then I started doing tours around them. And now I do like online videos. I still do the tours, still occasionally do the blogs. Uh, and it's just kind of grown from there because I just, I just love the dead. I think they're fascinating. It's knowing as a historian that that person you want to speak to can't speak to you back. And I'm not saying that I'm, I'm glad of that, but it's a one-way relationship <laughs> yeah. that I want to find out about them, but knowing that I will never get the answer back from that person. I have to do almost both sides of the talking. Mm. And that way, I find that fascinating. And that comes with its own problems and kind of hang-ups and so on. So it's knowing that that is, yeah, it, it's almost like me trying to yearn into the past, trying desperately to seek these past voices, but knowing that I will never get an answer in the way that I'd, I'd really like. So kind of having to make do with that as well. So that's kind of why, well, yeah, why, why I'm fascinated and why I love them. I love that. That's great immediately a bleak insight into my childhood but I used to go to cemeteries as a, as a kid because there was one right next to our school and we loved looking at all the old names and because we were kids we were making up stories about people or saying that's a really cool name that's what I'm going to name my yeah. next pet very sort of jovial in terms of like what we were using it for this is the thing as well that I find particularly with my own interest as well which did start off as a kiddie because I would go to my grandfather's graves when I was when I was a young lad. Again, there was that this preconception about cemeteries. You know, again, you were wandering around with your friend making up life stories for people. Whereas when I used to go with my mum and dad, I could only ever go to my my grandfather's graves. Uh, we we couldn't go and see the the next door person. Mm. We couldn't see the one over the way. That wasn't allowed. You know, you went there for that purpose. Yeah. You, you know, you you said a prayer by the grave, or you put some begonias on it, and then you went away. Yeah, and it was. You know, you'd only spend a maximum of, say, 10, 15 minutes there. And that was it. Yeah. And as a kid, I realised, yeah, but who are they? Yeah. You know, let, let's say you take a train to somebody never been before. You step off at the station and you've got a whole new town to explore. It's that same thing for me that I saw. And it frustrated me because obviously as a child, again, cemeteries aren't the safest of places. What with True. soft, delicate child's heads and very hard headstones. Such richness there that, that you know, I, I didn't really get the chance to explore until I was, say, about 15, 16 on my own. Adults very rarely had the account of answers that I wanted to. Like, who's grandpa's neighbour? Like, who is in the grave next to his? So it's like, I don't know these people. And it's like... My parents have tried to kind of rationalise my interest. And obviously now, what, seven, eight years into to, to Cemetery Club and, and what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think they've just about got it. But, you know, how, the, how they were brought up, there was very much a very different relationship for that for them mm, definitely you know, the cemetery was where you know granddad was buried but we don't really think about it whereas you know even just a couple of generations before cemeteries were the epicenter of life you know yeah. that you would you know you, they were sometimes the places to be seen yeah and it's the first world war that really changed that perception mm. where you know suddenly going around in mourning clothes and being miserable all the time wasn't really seen to be in good taste considering how many people died and so that that gear shift that happened as a result that was obviously fed down into the modern era and now obviously in an age of social media and of course people like myself kind of re-energizing re that approach and trying to go well actually no that these are important places that now people are starting to loosen the, sh the shackles of their own inhibitions about going to such spaces and seeing them you know for, for the wonderful places that they are 
Exactly. I mean, I love that. Like, I, I really like when people go for a for a walk or have their lunch there, or you know, I mean, Victorians would have picnics with the dead for goodness' sake. So it's sort of like it's not disrespectful to go in there and have your sandwich as long as you take a litter with you. <laughs> You're all right. As you say, you know, this is something that's been going on for for years. You know, even in the 1840s, there was death tourism. You know, most of the cemeteries had guidebooks about the grand. Uh, unfortunately, they're all white men. Yeah. Um, <laughs> nowadays, we have a far more diverse kind of way of telling the stories of their wives and people of colour mm. and, and queer histories and so on. So, yes, you said it was, it was an everyday part of life. And it's just weird that we've kind of shied away from that. So what's, what's the tour like with you guys? The way I start off usually is that, right, OK, everyone's probably heard of Highgate, probably the best known cemetery in the UK. That's, I, personally speaking, I don't think it's the best. It's lovely. Don't get me wrong. But there are others that I prefer. But anyway, that's, that's, a, that's a tangent. I'll say, okay, so, you know, you might be more au fait with your local cemetery, but this this particular cemetery, wherever I end up doing the tour, is full of history just as much as your local is. And I'm going to show you some of the stories that interest me. And, you know, we, we can tie this in with, with um, local and national events, see where these people fitted in within those spheres. And then at the end of it, uh, obviously, you know, you've heard about some fantastic biographies and life stories. I want this to be a stepping stone for you to go off and do your own research in your own cemeteries, because these are lives that have been parked or forgotten. And it's up to people like us to rediscover them. The way I, I see the tours, the pattern that they usually follow is that it's a, it's a starting point. People go off, see what I, the kind of history I like to do, and then adapt it for themselves to take off and then hopefully you know, kind of yeah, get some get some history back into the into the public consciousness. Love it. That's fabulous. I know that you do Halloween tours. What are they like? Are they different from your normal tours? Honestly, no. <laughs> I don't subscribe to ghosts and ghouls and goblins. I think that's all a load of nonsense. And I also think it's also quite disrespectful. Of course, Halloween has its own connotations with jack-o'-lanterns and skeletons and stuff. But one thing that on the Halloween tours that we make abundantly clear, this is not an ooky spooky tour. This is a tour about social history, mm -hmm. about people's lives that you're going to be hearing about. Now, the way we treat it is that these we talk about these people, as we do with any other tour, as if they're here with us. Mm. We're not going to be talking about, oh, and so lady so-and-so was seen with her head in her hand walking around. Mm. No, 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 that's a load of nonsense. That, that's conjecture. <laughs> I like Halloween to be more kind of like a Day of the Dead kind of celebration. Yeah. Where we think about those who've long gone, we remember them, and we also analyse their life stories and what we can glean from those. So yeah. we... So the Halloween tours are very kind of, it's almost like business as usual. You know, mm. Obviously it's not because it's Halloween and everyone goes, ooh, cemetery tour in a graveyard. Yeah. You know, yes, all right, we, we might dress up a little for the occasion. In terms of content, it's no different than if you were going to attend a tour any other time of year. I love when people find cemeteries really creepy, like cemeteries and graveyards really, really creepy. And I'm like, I feel like they're like the least haunted places. <laughs> I feel like they are good resting places, like precisely because they're sort of not particularly spooky. They're basically parks with dead people, which... The, the founder of Finder Grave has been on record saying that cemeteries are parks for introverts, oh. which I think is fairly true. And particularly what with the COVID-19 pandemic that we've been living through, a lot of people have been using cemeteries as alternatives to parks because they've not felt comfortable with how busy the parks have gotten. Mm. Again, the, the weird times that we live in now where death has suddenly become a little bit more real. They have become epicenters, people, again, because of exercise, again, because of death, because yeah, of COVID, yeah. have you. Socially, they are important, important spaces, which should be revered with every bit of respect as they always have been. Yeah, absolutely. And if anything, I would say this sort of tour sort of gives people more of an opportunity to engage with that, because I guess being an immigrant makes me think that, well, 
that I have no business going around a cemetery where my dead aren't. But like, it's not, it's not really about that, right? It, it, history gives me a connection to that place because they are also humans who may in fact have had very similar stories to mine. And like, that's comforting in some ways, even if they're not like my direct ancestors. Yeah, they would have gone for a drink, they would have played football, they would have had a laugh, they would have had a bit of a sing-song, they would have had upsets, they would have had arguments. They, you know, a lot of what we experience on a day-to-day basis is nothing new. But, you know, a lot of what they went through, a love, heartbreak, loss, um, you know, it's, it's, it's the human story and it's just like we're part of that, that chain. So, yeah, you know, as you say, you know, you might not consider yourself a, a stranger in a place where you don't have any formal link. But that's, that's again, that, that doesn't really matter because there is a shared experience through, through life. What sort of reactions do you get from people who go on your tours? Overwhelmingly positive. People love it. In the early days, there was a slight reticence, but I think people understand what going on a cemetery club tour is about. People know that it's, it's us trying to do right by that person. And speaking about history walks and all, you know, of course, a lot of the histories that we talk about are contentious. Knowing that it's not just simply a yes, yes tour, which is like, oh, this person was lovely. This person was lovely. This person was lovely. No, some of the people buried there were bastards. Yeah. And we do talk about that. It's true because Good. not everyone who dies is a nice person. And that's, and that's again, that's the human condition. Yeah. Some of them were murderers. Some of them were bigamists. Some were, you know, whatever, whatever the reason is. I and mean, it's about tacking that head on and acknowledging it, but speaking about it in an adult, open, honest, accessible way. What's your favourite thing about cemeteries? My favourite thing about cemeteries is the fact I can get lost. Oh, no, I never get lost in cemeteries. That no, long. they're not usually that massive, to be honest. <laughs> you leave the you leave the outside world at the gates. Yeah, and I just go in and I just start looking, scouring each headstone for a name, phone in my hand, just seeing what I can find. And that is one of the that is one of my favourite pastimes to do. I adore doing it because it's just. You, some of the stuff that you find, just you know, you, you put your phone on airplane mode and just get left alone. You, you, no one's there to bother you. No one's there to harass you. You're there under your own steam, doing what you love and just going and finding. And that, that's 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 one of my favourite things to do. And um, when you step through the gates of a cemetery, is literally like stepping into another realm. It's like stepping yeah. into another world. It's a brilliant, brilliant way to spend an afternoon. It's great. Where can people find out more if they're interested? So I'm on most of the social medias. I've recently got a TikTok. I haven't got a clue what I'm Ooh. doing. Um, I thought, well, let's let's give it a whirl. Um, yes, yeah, so Cemetery Club on Twitter, on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and obviously my main website, which is cemeteryclub.co.uk, where I kind of post updates and blogs and tours and stuff about what I'm doing. Excellent. Links in the show notes, people, as usual. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you very much. It's been really enjoyable. Thank you. <laughs> So, now that we've left spooky stories behind and we've stopped wandering around the cemetery with Sheldon, we're going to have a nice sit-down and uh, talk about some more conservation-related things. And with me, I've got a special interviewee for the subject. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, my name is Catherine Groff. I am a buildings-slash-stone conservator an emerging conservator. So I've only been in the field for about four years. I'm originally from the United States, but I decided to change careers and move to the UK uh, in 2017 to study conservation. Um, I studied at the University of Lincoln and initially it was object conservation. So working in a laboratory under a microscope and I gradually moved towards larger objects 
uh, more building-based objects. And finally, now I'm working on proper buildings and monuments, um, anything that's falling apart. Anything that's quite big, by the sounds of things. Exactly, and I generally work in a team setting, so with several conservators and masons. What was your dissertation about? So this was a decision I made while I was studying. I originally wasn't interested in stone, but as we were thinking about dissertation topics, I thought, "Oh, I love graveyards, and I love." Wandering around churchyards and looking at all of the stones, and what if I did a dissertation concerning these gravestones? I did some research about the relationship between gravestones and biological growths, and how conservators can be mindful of the growths on gravestones. And that originally was going to be my dissertation topic, but. I'm not a biologist, and you didn't fancy becoming one overnight. <laughs> That would have taken forever. So my dissertation topic was very broad. It ended up being a conservation-based exploration of preserving English churchyards, and I say churchyards specifically because churchyards versus cemeteries—they're quite different things. And I don't know if you've discussed this. You know, we didn't. We didn't actually talk about what the different distinctions are. I've just sort of been throwing around graveyards and cemeteries and the different words, but I haven't actually done a proper definition, which is very naughty of me because I usually do. So a churchyard is well next to a church. They developed over time. They were a space to gather or for the congregation to gather. They held fairs there and markets, and they'd play games there. It was. Gathering place, and then eventually it developed into a burial ground that expanded around the church. 1800s issue of overcrowding in the churchyards, and there simply just wasn't space for burial. So there was a decision made that a new burial ground had to be introduced, and so they found land outside of cities, and it was designed as opposed to churchyards, which kind of just. Yeah. Became cemeteries were designed specifically for burial, and they were parks. They became a pleasure ground area as well as a yeah. burial ground, and so that's now the they're the largest areas for burial, and that's what people use now as opposed、mm. to churchyards. That's a good definition. Thank you for that. So, out of curiosity, how did you get interested in you know cemeteries and churchyards and stuff like that in the first place? This is a good question because I actually really have no idea. I never really had an interest in them growing up. I actually had quite a fear of them. Ooh! Whenever we would take long trips in the car and we'd pass a graveyard or cemetery, we had this rule where you would have to hold your breath as you passed the cemetery. Great car game. Or and if you didn't, you would be haunted. So that was my. Ooh. I don't know how I viewed cemeteries for a long time. Yeah. But then once I moved to the UK, I found them quite beautiful, and I actually have a quote about why people are so drawn、Ooh. to cemeteries, particularly newcomers or outsiders. So why am I, as someone who isn't from the UK, why am I so drawn to these cemeteries? So there was there's a historian, David Lowenthal. 
And he wrote that the modern impulse toward preservation is partly a reaction to the increasing evanescence of the things that pass through our lives. We cling all the more to the little that remains familiar, and we compensate for a less well-known environment with a heightened interest in its history, like a newcomer to an old village who self-consciously acquires roots by joining the local history society. Mm. So he doesn't mention graveyards, but for me, this became, I, I'm not from Lincoln, I'm not from the UK, so I joined a local history society and that's how I became involved with graveyards. I became a volunteer in documenting them and that's kind of how my dissertation formed. Oh, that's fantastic. I love it. Yeah. So back to your dissertation, like I'm curious to see like both sort of how you went about it and sort of what your findings were. So because it was an exploration, it wasn't very mm. science-based, but I had a lot of discussions and a lot of interviews with people in the heritage sector because I wanted to get their thoughts on how graveyards should be preserved and who should do it because I came to find that when it comes to the recording aspect, archaeologists are primarily responsible mm. for the recording of gravestones. Interesting. And conservators are only called in when something needs to be repaired or cleaned, that sort of thing, which, yeah, it, that's our job. But also part of our job is to document mm. objects. And I was kind of going into this dissertation thinking about how can conservators become more involved with graveyards? So I just established that although we could treat individual gravestones, they're just far too many. I calculated that in churchyards alone in the UK, there are well over two million gravestones. Oh, that's a lot. Yes. So these obviously can't be all preserved in a traditional sense. They can't all be treated. So if we look at them like a collection, each churchyard is its own small collection of stones. If we record them and do condition report, then that is the best approach to preserving a churchyard. So that was my approach to my dissertation, just kind of throwing away the interventive treatment side of conservation and focusing on the documentation side. Oh, but that's just as important, though. Like the the fact, I mean, sometimes I think that we gloss over how important it is that we record things. That's part of the process. So actually, I think that's that's vital. Do you want to continue doing any sort of research into this? Or like, do you feel like sort of, I'm happy with leaving it to other people now? I'd absolutely like to get more involved. But what I've learned is you can't do it alone. You have to find a group of people to work with. And there are actually really great groups that have been started. So within the UK, what I found is there are a lot of small historical societies mm. that have tried to record their churchyards. And they record the inscriptions and that's pretty much it. There's no standardized way of recording. No. So Harold Lydum is a professor of archaeology at the University of Liverpool, and he specializes in various areas, but one of them is mortuary archaeology. Oh, cool. In 2000, he wrote a handbook 
for the recording and analyzing of graveyards mm-hmm. for the Council of British Archaeology. So this handbook is quite extensive, and it covers all aspects of gravestones. So initially, you think, oh, yes, record the inscription. That's where the importance lies, or that's where the value lies in a gravestone. But actually, there are so many more aspects to gravestones. There's the design on it. There's the lettering, the type of stone, who was the mason who worked on it. So as an object, there's quite a wealth of information. And he suggests deciding on which aspects interest the recorders the most or the the group that's recording, which aspects are the most interesting. And he created a code for each design, each type of stone, so that later analysis can be done. So recently, there's another group. It's called Discovering England's Burial Spaces. This was a joint project between the University of York and Archaeological Data Services. And they, with Harold Mitem, created this really great website that will help groups that are trying to record churchyards or cemeteries. They provide a ton of research and a ton of materials for these groups to start their projects. Oh, cool. And so Harold has updated his handbook from 21 years ago, and it should be released pretty soon or published pretty soon. So I'm excited for that. Oh, amazing. Well, I'm certainly keep an eye out for that. And we'll pop some links in the show notes as well. That's super fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. And finally, do you have a favorite thing about churchyards? So I was thinking about this because there are so many aspects that I love. I love that you can just walk around them and just enjoy nature and you can have a picnic. You can really do anything. They're just really great green spaces. But my favorite thing about the conservation aspect, because I have worked on gravestones, is when you're working on them, I like to think of the people that they're commemorating and the loved ones who cared about these people. And I like to think about how much they'd appreciate me working on them. Aww. Yeah, I, I care for each stone that I work on. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much. That's such a nice thing to end on. Hello again, and welcome back to another spooky Halloween edition of the Benchwork Bar. I'm Amanda Richards, and tonight we'll be making the Spider Bite Cocktail. So this one is inspired by a nice little spider bite I received while cleaning a collection, and where I sadly did not gain any superhero powers relating to archives or conservation, but I'm still holding out hope. There's time yet. So for this cocktail, you'll need a shaker and ice and a strainer. For the ingredients, you will need some gold rum or any rum that you have on hand, some roses, sweetened lime juice, or fresh lime juice, and simple syrup. And then you'll also need Chambord, the raspberry liqueur. And the star of the show here is the biggest jalapeno that you can find. What we're going to do is we're going to serve this shot inside the jalapeno. So to start the cocktail, we're going to cut off the top uh, where the stem is. 
and that'll come down about a quarter of an inch to a half an inch and chop the top off and go ahead and put that in your shaker. And then you'll put your ice on top of that. And then you will hollow out your jalapeno, getting all the ribs and the seeds out. And if you want an extra spicy cocktail, you can throw those into your uh, shaker as well. All right, now we are going to do a half an ounce of each of our ingredients. So here is a half ounce of our gold rum, a half ounce of Rose's lime juice, and a half an ounce of the Chambord raspberry liqueur. All right, and our jalapeno and our ice are already in there. So now we'll put the top on. We'll shake it for 15 to 20 seconds just to get it nice and chilly. All right, take off our lid, keep the lid next to you, and we're going to strain our cocktail into the lid or into another glass. All right, so strain, get out the jalapeno bits, the ice, the seeds, anything that made its way into that cocktail that you don't want to drink. All right, now take your hollowed out jalapeno and sit it upright in your shot glass and use your lid to pour in the cocktail into the jalapeno. You can also serve it with, in a regular shot glass or just in a cocktail glass, whatever your preference is, but serving it in the jalapeno definitely gives it a little extra bite. Then you can choose to garnish it with one of those plastic spider rings or some cotton candy, and there you go. There is your spider bite the happiest of Halloweens, and I hope you do not get bitten by a spider. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. And a warm welcome to our latest patrons, Morag and Richard. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Ali Singh, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jenna Thiasson. Join us next time for an episode about aches and pains. In the meantime, check out our website at theseawood.show, tweet us at theseawoodpodcast, or simply email us on theseawoodpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects from Envato Elements. That's right, we've gone fancy and paid for something. This has been a Wooden Dice production.
is that, this is starting to become snakes on a plane, isn't it? But <laughs> yeah, can, can, can you have snakes thing. in a gallery? Like just release them for <laughs> pest control? <laughs> Has anyone done that? <laughs> it would be very specific. I'm and not up for that. 